Hey gang, you're listening to the r Rounds podcast, and I'm Jonathan Wallace. And in this fourth episode, we're going to be talking about acute pain assessment and management in the rural ED. Now, I estimate that more than half of patients seeing me in my emergency department have some degree of pain afflicting them. Thus, it's of greater or lesser importance as part of their visit. Pain is certainly a common trigger leading someone to seek care in an emergency department in Canada. I only have one learning objective for this episode, the topic of pain assessment and pain control in the emergency department. Now this is a huge topic, and so in subsequent episodes, I will be building further on this theme, talking about how to approach pain that is disproportionate to exam findings, as well as my approach to refractory pain. Anyway, let me start by sharing a case that involves pain. So at any time of the day, any day of the week in Fort St. Nowhere, someone of any age over 16 presents with lower back pain. And sometimes this is new onset, perhaps with a traumatic history, like single-handedly trying to lift a 500-pound snowmobile into the back of a pickup truck. And sometimes it's beyond chronic in a patient with a complex history of fibromyalgia on chronic opiates and medical marijuana. So go ahead and in your mind, pick anyone like that with whatever kind of medical history and we'll get started as I share my evidence-informed approach to pain management. All right, so objective one, pain assessment and control in the ED. There is a disconnect between what emergency physicians typically prioritize in any given visit versus what patients prioritize. For example, when a patient presents with chest pain, our natural inclination as physicians is to rule out or treat a STEMI as quickly as possible. But from the patient perspective, their primary concern might be the unbearable discomfort or the fear of what happened when a relative suddenly developed this pain and dropped dead decades ago. As such, both the science and anecdotal reports indicate that emergency physicians are not aggressive enough when it comes to treating symptoms such as pain, nausea, anxiety or panic, and so on. I think this concept of symptom relief and addressing the whole patient, that Fife mnemonic that we learned from medical school and residency, also goes hand in hand with that old adage we all learned in medical school. In terms of being sued, it doesn't matter if your patient believes that you are a good doctor or a bad doctor. Rather, what determines whether you get sued is whether they believe you're a nice doctor. And so this statement definitely deserves serious contemplation. In this context, I hope it serves to underline the importance of being aggressive in treating pain and treating pain control as a visible priority when communicating with your patient. Anyway, as we all know, treating pain can be very challenging. Pain is a relatively nebulous, subjective experience that makes it difficult to study and there is never going to be a satisfactory one-size-fits-all answer. I don't claim to be an expert in pain, but given that anesthesiologists deem acute pain to be the enemy, I've certainly received a lot more training in acute pain management than most of my family physician colleagues. Furthermore, while I was living in the Rockies, I inherited a chronic pain clinic from the previous GP anesthetist. And while chronic pain is certainly not an area of passion for me, I learned a lot about how to effectively approach it and also observed a lot of examples of ineffective and potentially harmful management of chronic pain. So what I'm working up to here is now my own approach to pain management in the emergency department. I think it's safe to say that it is evidence-informed as much as pain management can really be evidence-driven. However, there's certainly a great deal of extrapolation and expert opinion, and by that I'm referring to many other physician peers and not so much my own opinions, mixed in for good measure as well. So please do take everything that I suggest here with a grain of salt. And as always, don't hesitate to send me your thoughts, suggestions, and opposing views because I too want to learn and better my own practice. All right, so we are focusing on acute pain management or acute flares of chronic pain. Since chronic pain itself is a completely different ball of wax that lies far outside of the realm of emergency medicine. And so it should. 
In my mind, acute pain can be broken down into a few different overlapping categories, which include, number one, muscular, mechanical, query, prostaglandin-induced discomfort, which I'm going to refer to as tissue-based pain. And that covers pain types such as tension headaches, soft tissue injuries, fractures, acute abdominal inflammation like cholecystitis or appendicitis, and so on. Number two, neuropraxic pain, arising from inflammation, compression, or trauma to the nerves themselves. And this would include sciatica, trigeminal neuralgia, herpetic neuralgia, complex regional pain syndrome, and other similar dermatomal type pains that are more burning in nature and generally refractory to anti-inflammatories and opiates. The other thing about neuropraxic pain is that it's often associated with dysthesias. And so a normal stimulus like blankets rubbing across your skin become intolerable to the patient. Okay, the third type I want to talk about is an emotional type pain that is related to stress and anxiety and might arise from an acute fall or car crash or stresses at home from family members or dissatisfaction with life and work, financial pressures or any flavor of abuse or addictions. Clearly, I'm just scratching the surface in terms of the very broad and colorful landscape of emotional stressors that can cause or contribute to the perception of pain in the human brain. All three of these subtypes of pain, tissue-based pain, neuropraxic pain, and emotional stress pain can cause or contribute to the almost unlimited field of pain complaints presenting to the emergency department. No one in medicine, pain specialists included, have the expertise or tools to manage every type of pain 100%, and certainly not emergency physicians with very limited time in the department. Okay, so with all that said and laid out, here is my approach. When I first find out about a patient in the department with pain, for example, I get a phone call from the nurse telling me that a patient has just arrived, or I hear someone moaning as they're being put into a new hospital bed, I will take 10 seconds to determine what the chief complaint is and whether it is likely that there may be a tissue-based pain component to it. At that point, over the phone or on the patient's chart, without even seeing them, I will order my tier one of medications. And side note, on this podcast, I'm going to talk about doses for adults only. I'll leave it to the listener to extrapolate appropriate dosing for children, frail patients, and so on. So acetaminophen, 1,000 milligrams orally, and an NSAID, depending on my gut reaction as to how likely emotional stress type pain is factoring into the equation. So an 18-year-old who's presenting with a twisted ankle after falling from a horse would receive ibuprofen 400 milligrams orally, assuming there are no nursing contraindications to NSAIDs. A sobbing 48-year-old presenting with three weeks of back pain would receive Ketorolac 10 milligrams IM or IV, again, assuming that there are no nursing contraindications. To be clear, both would receive 1,000 milligrams of acetaminophen, or at least a top-up in the rare circumstance that they had already taken acetaminophen prior to arrival. Next, I get back to whatever I was doing. Usually that means at least 20 to 30 minutes of time will lapse before I officially meet the patient for the first time. And that gives me the advantage of seeing how they responded to tier one medications. And so very early in my interview, I will slide in an assessment of their pain and reaction to our drugs. Okay, Ben, I see from the notes that you fell from a horse an hour ago and hurt your ankle. I know we gave you some drugs here and I'm just wondering how you're doing. Did the medication we give you make any difference? And generally, I'm going to get one of three responses. First of all, yeah, I feel so much better. My pain is almost gone, at which point I know I have already made a friend and can focus the rest of my visit on the medical assessment of the ankle and whatever needs to be done from a diagnostic or prognostic standpoint. I can also coach the patient on what to continue to take so that they can maintain the same level of pain relief once they get home. Second reaction, yeah, it helped a little bit, but it still really hurts, or I don't think it made much difference at all. 
at which point I will do a focused but in-depth evaluation of their pain, the results of which will help me better evaluate if this is still likely a tissue-based pain or identify a neuropraxic pain, as well as estimate to what degree the emotional stress type pain is playing a role. If I'm thinking tissue-based pain is most likely, I will move on to tier two ASAP, and I promise we'll get to what tier two is in a moment. However, I will interrupt the patient interview and tell them, let's get you something stronger right now. I'll just go ask the nurses to do that and I'll be right back. And again, I feel like I'm building that therapeutic trust. Plus, it has helped me diagnostically in terms of recognizing that the cause is either a more severe tissue-based pain, such as an acute fracture that's hiding, or something else that I need to look harder for. On the other hand, if I'm identifying a neuropraxic component, then I can pivot and begin to counsel and line the patient up for understanding what that means and where they can begin to find long-term physician support in that treatment route. I may also discuss with the patient the idea of starting something like gabapentin in emergency, but now we're beginning to go down a very different rabbit hole, and so I will leave this discussion for another time. Lastly, if I'm getting the sense that there is an emotional stress type component that is significantly contributing, I will usually find a chair so I can sit down and then begin a bit of a five to 10 minute mental health assessment and therapy session for the patient. My goal here is to identify what sort of stressors may be contributing to the pain, what degree of insight the patient has into the fact that their emotional state is contributing to their perceived symptoms, as well as plant some seeds that the solution to their symptoms is going to rest in a multimodal and team-based approach. For example, I may be encouraging them to follow up with their family physician to consider an anti-anxiety therapy like an SSRI or equivalent, not benzos, and to follow up with a real counselor and not just one's peers or family members, which as we know has the potential to cause more harm than good in some of these situations. I will also address the opportunity to initiate or optimize tier one medications, such as acetaminophen and ibuprofen, or other potentially non-addictive, non-street value medications, such as gabapentin. Overall though, my goal is to help them realize that there are issues beyond just their sore back and that everything is interconnected and needs to be addressed concurrently. And most importantly, that the solution doesn't lie in a single pill that's going to magically cure everything, but rather it lies mostly in recognition, lifestyle changes, as well as sometimes pharmacotherapy, and that ultimately the goal may be just better quality of life and improvement in functioning as opposed to a return to symptom-free, perfect health as they often feel is achievable. Just like I said in my intro to this section, pain management is complicated and often there is no perfect solution. In fact, frequently the greatest contribution we can make as emergency physicians is helping patients recognize when their expectations of the magic pill are misplaced and rather help them to understand their best solution is in a much more complicated, broad and multimodal team approach with their family physician in the center. The third reaction I may see after prescribing tier one medications is a patient who has outright refused all or part of my cocktail. My reaction now is to try to understand why the refusal. And sometimes there's just a simple misunderstanding about medication and avoidance. Perhaps the patient has been told not to take anti-inflammatories because of their effect on hypertension. Or perhaps the patient is terrified of NSAIDs because their alcoholic uncle died of an upper GI bleed after taking too much naproxen. Or perhaps they have decided that acetaminophen and NSAIDs do not work for them. And indeed their objective is to obtain oxycodone for me. Regardless of their rationale, understanding why they refuse my tier one medications helps me better address their concerns. 
I can then spend my time educating them about when or when it is not appropriate to take these over-the-counter medications, or I can counsel them about safe chronic opiate prescribing practices and take the time to explain to them how it is that I cannot refill a chronic opiate in the emergency and that they must use only one physician for their ongoing safety. Side note, no one is happy to hear this, but usually I can get them to at least see some reason and understand why it is that I will not be providing them with a script for 180 tablets of OxyContin today. My philosophy remains that if a patient requires more than, say, six tablets of an opiate, which we can send them home with from emergency, then they're in the wrong location and talking to the wrong doctor. Rather, they need to follow up with their surgeon or their GP, etc. And as part of that contract for being a responsible chronic opiate user, they need to have enough foresight and planning in future so as to prevent themselves from getting into this predicament again, rather than come to emergency late on a Friday night expecting a refill. Okay, so that's pretty hot and heavy talk on the subject of acute pain control in the ED. But the key to addressing acute pain appropriately is recognizing when it is not acute tissue type pain, yet still tackling it rather than writing a script for morphine and just brushing it off. So this brings me to my tier two. As I've already described, patients in pain that are refractory to tier one or had contraindications to all or part of tier one, and that have been identified by me as having a likely tissue-based pain component, probably should receive something stronger. My personal choice for tier two is hydromorphone, one to two milligrams orally, depending on the patient's size and frailty. And I will pause here and say, yes, I do go to opiates. I know that there are movements afoot to reduce or eliminate opiates altogether in the emergency department. Movements like ALTO, that's alternative to opiates, which you can search on your own time if you're interested. These sorts of opiate-free ED movements use alternative drugs like ketamine, lidocaine, gabapentin, and nerve blocks in place of opiates. And I have to say that philosophically, I completely agree with the value of avoiding opiates. However, I also have to acknowledge from a utilitarian standpoint that most of these alternative approaches require extra familiarity and time to learn. And that's great if you work in an academic teaching hospital and have all the collegial and paramedical supports in place. But as rural docs, let's be real. Learning to do an erector spinae plane block on the fly in Fort St. Nowhere instead of giving opiates for renal colic is not something you wanna be doing in the middle of a busy shift. Instead, if you wanna learn some of these techniques, dedicate some time to learning properly from experienced colleagues. Go take an introductory nerve block course or join a rural education program like R&R Rounds core program, which can safely introduce you to these alternate skill types. Okay, back to tier two analgesic choices, which for the rest of this episode, I'm going to focus on strategic and well-calculated opiate choices. I think the first thing to acknowledge is that for many types of tissue pain, and especially for neuropraxic or emotional stress pains, opiates are really not that effective. While there may be some reduction in actual pain conduction, a large part of their effect comes from the sedative or anxiolytic properties of the opiate. Still though, it improves the patient's comfort temporarily, which helps build rapport, and it can assist sometimes diagnostically also. My ideal opiate of choice is hydromorphone because it's a synthetic drug, and it does not cause histamine release like morphine, and therefore it does not cause nausea. Indeed, as an anesthetist who uses opiates all the time, I am not convinced I have ever seen a patient develop nausea after receiving just hydromorphone. Codeine, which is generally administered with Tylenol as part of Tylenol-3 or equivalent, is metabolized into morphine, but only by a small percentage of the population. And for the rest, 
it does absolutely nothing except realistically reduce the active amount of acetaminophen that the patient is taking. Similarly, drugs like Tramacet, I have no use for. I would much prefer to put the patient on high-dose acetaminophen and then give them a separate prescription for pure opiates rather than mixed drugs. Now, that's just my own personal bias. Anyway, for all of these reasons, my go-to is hydromorphone selectively over morphine, its derivatives or other combo drugs. The dosing in order to make that transition from morphine to hydromorphone is really easy. Just take your morphine dose and divide by five. Easy, cleaner, and better tolerated by patients. Why would you not make that change? Do I always use hydromorphone two milligrams PO? No, of course not. If someone is vomiting, then I will use IV. I give ondansetron first, and then I give hydromorphone 0.2 to 0.4 milligrams IV. If someone is in extreme pain, like a suspected renal colic or there's rebar sticking out of their chest, I don't waste time with tier one medications or slower onset hydromorph. In these cases, I start with fentanyl, 25 to 50 micrograms IV, which is very rapid acting, and I give that every five minutes as needed. I still load them with tier one meds when it's safe to do so, but I also chase the fentanyl with some hydromorphone in order to maintain that longer acting pain control. Fentanyl IV begins to work in five minutes or less, whereas hydromorphone IV takes perhaps 15 minutes and orally it takes up to 30 minutes. So the longer acting hydromorphone is beginning to kick in as the rapidly acting fentanyl is wearing off around the 30 minute mark. Now what happens if the pain is refractory to the first or second dose of opiates? Now that's a good question that leads into the discussion of pain that is disproportionate to exam findings as well as refractory pain, which we'll cover in a future episode. For the sake of this discussion though, if someone isn't responding to say hydromorphone four milligrams orally or hydromorphone one milligram IV, then my duty is to stop and ask myself why. I'm not saying I'm not gonna give more, but I may be changing to alternatives at that point, such as some low-dose ketamine or lidocaine or something else. I'm also checking to see if I'm just barking up the wrong tree because if the diagnosis is post-herpetic neuralgia, I'm probably gonna to have to give them enough opiate to sedate them in order to gain any significant pain control. Similarly, if the major driving force of the so-called pain seems to be anxiety from say a situational crisis, I'll pause and give a small dose of say lorazepam one to two milligrams orally or IV and reassess in half an hour before we open the next carton of hydromorphone. For things like dental pain, in my experience, antibiotics and anti-inflammatories are the real answer. And so I'll get that first dose of antibiotics into them, load them up with a shot of something and coach them to go home and call their dentist in the morning, but not to expect things to settle too much for the first 48 hours. For headaches, I use a migraine protocol or for tension headaches, IV fluid and anti-inflammatories. In a truly refractory headache, say one in 100 cases, I might give some oral opiates, but I definitely need to be considering a head CT and other scary causes by that point. For abdominal cramps in a non-peritoneal presentation, I love to use hyoscine or buscopan. There is really only one organ system that causes pain that can shift around as well as wax and wane all over the abdomen without causing peritonitis and that's colic from bowel pain. Laxatives and a trial of hyacine with potentially a script for hyacine at home, 10 milligrams every six hours as needed, are my usual starting places for that type of pain. And let me be clear that all these pain regimens that I'm talking about presuppose that I have already managed or excluded any serious pathology. This is purely the symptomatic approach now.
Biliary colic can often be controlled with diet and anti-inflammatories, and if it's refractory to that, it probably needs admission. Pancreatitis also needs bowel rest, if not admission most of the time. Peptic ulcer disease also needs diet modifications and some sort of acid treatment with a PPI or perhaps more. Renal colic is pretty horrific, and I will definitely send those patients home with a six pack of something, but if they need more than that, then they likely benefit from admission and imaging to assess if the stone is impacted and whether there's any hydronephrosis. Musculoskeletal pain never requires ongoing opiates in my experience. Even a fracture, once it's reduced and casted, generally can manage okay on just the tier one type medications. One exception could be flail chest or severe rib fractures, particularly in a frail patient who may not tolerate hypoventilation. These patients probably need to be admitted, ideally to receive an epidural or regional anesthetic infusion rather than respiratory depressing opiates. None of these diagnoses require ongoing opiates in my mind. So at the end of the day, in my assessment, who should get ongoing opiates? Number one, chronic cancer pain. Number two, patients intraoperatively. And number three, postoperative pain for perhaps the first 24 to 72 hours or so, but transitioning to tier one medications ASAP. Am I a total hard ass when it comes to opiate prescribing? You bet I am, because 4.7 people die every day in British Columbia as a result of opiate abuse. And we, ladies and gentlemen, as the gatekeepers of opiates, are the profession that has really allowed our society to develop a taste for these highly addictive and pretty terrible quality analgesics. Now, don't get me wrong, we definitely had help. What with the marketing of specific opiates to doctors and rewarding them for prescribing them, Trust me, it's not just physicians that I'm blaming here, but it is our responsibility to tighten up our prescribing habits. And so, while it may take time, every patient who comes into emergency complaining of pain gets to hear at least one of my several spiels on painkillers. Oh, and do I have spiels? I get tired of giving my exact same spiel multiple times per shift, but over the years, I've learned that a polished spiel, especially one in which I write down a couple of notes and give to the patient afterwards, is the most effective means of educating a patient and preventing bounce back. It is our responsibility to educate patients on the reality of pain and the reality of life, i.e. that pain is a normal and healthy part of life and that it should modify our behaviors and habits rather than lead us to look for magic snake oil to make it magically go away. But when it comes down to it, in resuscitation, I am very liberal, if not aggressive, with analgesics, including opiates in treating pain from trauma, cardiovascular disease, peritonitis, fractures, and so on. So that's my quick and dirty approach to acute pain assessment and control in the emergency department, or at least as much as I can squeeze into less than 25 minutes. Again, before anyone sends me any hate mail, I don't claim to be the world's best at this, but I do think that my approach is more aggressive and more effective than what I typically see or inherit in handover from colleagues. I also think it's very safe. Honestly, in the last 14 years I've been practicing as an attending, I've only ever had to give Narcan once, and that was at the request of a resident who wanted to see if it would work on a recreational overdose. So despite the fact I'm suggesting high doses of hydromorphone orally and IV, it seems aggressive, but it's still well, well within reasonable safety parameters for rural emergency medicine practice. Okay, take home points. Number one, be aggressive in addressing your patient's pain complaints and try to catch them as close as you can to triage. Number two, max out your tier one anti-inflammatory medications as much as their medical history will allow early on. Always try to combine acetaminophen with an NSAID when it is safe to do so and know your max doses for efficacy in NSAIDs and don't give any more. 
NSAIDs are great drugs, but so many patients are excluded due to peptic ulcer disease or renal impairment. And maybe if we were giving max efficacy doses of say ibuprofen 400 milligrams, rather than max toxicity doses of 800 milligrams, we can avoid those harms altogether and keep those drugs safe and available for these patients a bit longer. Number three, opiates are necessary evils in certain cases, but really we should be spending more time in our shift educating patients about why opiates are a really bad idea for them as compared to actually ordering and prescribing them. Chronic opiates, if they ever need to be prescribed, should always be done so through a stable clinic arrangement, including an opiate contract with just one prescriber who can offer follow-up. Coming to emergency because you were mugged for your opiates or your car was broken into for your opiates should really be a wake-up call that these pills are far more dangerous in one's life than whatever temporary perceived benefits they may impart. Okay, so that's it for this episode. I hope that you enjoyed this lack of case and we'll catch you next time. Bye for now.